Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. You've probably gathered at this point that the theme of our service from the songs that we've sung and the things, the scriptures that have been read, that the theme is love. Now, you might be a little confused by that if you remember last week that Max said we're doing a three-week series as kind of a refresher for our Love Bloomington campaign and commitments, a three-week series on faith, hope, and love. And last week, Max preached on faith, so you would expect that this week would be hope. But that's not the case. It's love. And I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking, but wait, the book of Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. What are you doing? You're going to make our hearts sick. But we're going to focus on love tonight, today, not tonight. I hope, that, uh, I hope and pray that our hearts will be strengthened and made healthier through coming to God's word as we focus on love this week. Um, and hopefully our hearts will not be sick as we come to God's word. So would you open with me please to Ephesians chapter 3. It's one of Paul's prayers in the New Testament. Most of Paul's letters have a rich prayer or him informing the people he's writing to that he does pray for them and he tells them about his prayer. And this is one of those places in Ephesians 3 where he tells the Ephesians of the types of things that he prays for them and what his prayer consists of as he goes to God. And this is what he says starting in verse 14 of Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We're going to look at a number of different places in scripture to see what God reveals to us about love. But I want this passage in Ephesians 3 here to be our root in our grounding. The magnificent, indescribable love of Christ is going to be the context in which we understand everything else that we say about love. Christ's love for sinners is the root of all true love. And everything we say about love must be grounded in the comprehension of his love. He defines it for us. Now about this passage, first I want you to notice two very simple facts. Okay, about what we just read. Number one is the simple fact that Paul prays for the Ephesians. Okay, he prays for them. And number two is that he tells them he prays for them. He doesn't just pray for them, he tells them that he does pray for them. Now it's a sweet thing to encourage one another through prayer and through informing one another of our prayers, through telling each other that we are praying for each other. Have you ever noticed how Paul does this over and over again in his letters in the New Testament? He says that he has not ceased to pray for the Colossians. 
To the Philippians, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering with joy, offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And to the Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. What a sweet example of Christian fellowship Paul gives to us in these letters of encouragement to brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my question is, do you encourage your brothers and sisters by telling them that you pray for them? Do you do that? Do you tell your brothers and sisters that you pray for them? Now, of course, that question bears with it another assumption. And that is, you know, when I ask you if you encourage your brothers and sisters by telling them that you pray for them, it drives to a more basic question, and that is, do you pray for your brothers and sisters? More specifically, do you pray for your brothers and sisters when they don't know about it? So you need to tell them. In other words, not at small group, not at Bible study, not when you meet together, which are all good times to pray. But do you pray for your brothers and sisters on your own time? Like Paul. Or more importantly, like Jesus. Remember what Christ told to Peter? Simon Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You think that was a strength to Peter? To know that Christ had been praying for him? Our prayers for each other, for our brothers and sisters, mark us as Christians. When we give ourselves to, in our own time, on our own, with God alone, praying for our brothers and sisters. But where do these private, secret prayers for one another come from? There's a very simple answer. They come from love for one another. From deep affection for each other in Christ. And so if the answer to, do you pray for your brothers is no, then the question must be asked, do you love your fellow Christians? What else could motivate you to lift up your brother or sister in prayer to God when no one else is watching? Now you might be thinking, what's going on here? The purpose of Love Bloomington is to love our neighbors. You know, why in the world am I talking about loving our brothers and sisters? What's the big idea? I mean, we've got that part down, right? We've got loving our fellow Christians down pretty good. You guys got that? No fighting, always praying for each other, submitting yourselves to one another. Anybody got that down? I don't think so. My goal is to show just how devoid of love we really are. Think about it. If we are weak in loving our friends and our brothers in the fellowship here in this room... How much drier is our love for those outside of this church? Or for those outside the flock of God? Remember that one of our central commitments in Love Bloomington has been to pray diligently for unbelievers. To pray that God would change their hearts. To pray that God would bless them with his presence. To pray that God would give us opportunities to speak with these friends, neighbors, classmates, and co-workers. 
Now, going into this initiative, when we were first going over the commitments, I thought to myself, well, obviously everyone's going to be more faithful in the prayer part than in, you know, the talking to people about Jesus or having other, people's, other people into our home. But I've been a little shocked that it has, that hasn't been the case. If you're like me, I and many I've talked to have had more than a few weeks where they've had spiritual conversations with people or maybe even had someone in their home, but have failed to pray. I say this is shocking because isn't praying supposed to be the easy part? I mean, isn't praying for people the low-pressure, low-hurdle aspect of the campaign? Just pray for specific people. That's it. But that's not how it works. Many of us have had as much trouble faithfully praying for people as keeping any of the other commitments. But why is this? Well, doesn't it seem much more glorious to come to small group and be able to say, I had five conversations and we had 18 people into our home last week. Oh, you prayed? I guess that's a start. But maybe you'll graduate beyond that to doing some real work, you know, eventually. But understand, there's something about the level of our commitment to private, secret prayer which really diagnoses the condition of our hearts. Even more than the level of our commitment to the seemingly more difficult commitments. What are your commitments when no one is looking? What are your commitments when no one realizes that you're acting on your commitments? What is your commitment to love the lost when the work is purely in the heart and soul, in prayer, invisible to the eyes of man? Think about it. Is it possible to speak to someone about Jesus without loving them? Yes. I think we would all say that we've done it. Certainly. Is it possible to have someone into your home without loving them? Yeah. But, is it possible to pray for someone, to lift someone up into heaven, and ask for God's blessing on them without loving them? I don't think so. Truly praying for someone requires that we do something that only God sees, and that we don't get any worldly recognition for. And it requires faith, perhaps more than the other seemingly daunting tasks. So to start off, I just want to exhort you that praying is not some sort of piddling level one of Love Bloomington, which you can hopefully you know, graduate beyond to reach levels two and three. Prayer, calling on God for power, is the foundation of the entire initiative because prayer roots and grounds us in love when we go to God. Now I want to take the opportunity to open up just a few scriptural truths about love, which I hope will convict and strengthen us where we need it today. And the first is very simple, but it's very, very important for us, and when I say us, I mean us here in this room, in this church, you and I to understand, because of our particular temptations, and that's this, this is the first thing to understand about love. Knowledge does not equal love. 
okay? Knowledge does not equal love. In my notes, I have one of those little does not equal signs. Knowledge does not equal love. Listen to this. It would be remiss of me if I had failed to draw from the treasure chest of 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter about love, um, which Nate read from earlier. We're going to go back there. 1 Corinthians 13, the beginning says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now many of us are aware of the fact that the world, and many who claim to be Christians, have sucked truth out of love. Right? Many have divorced love from true teaching and right doctrine, and have said that love is just about how you feel. And it has nothing to do with rigid standards of right and wrong. This is how we've ended up with Christian pastors proclaiming that someone can be a Christian and still cling to a sinful homosexual identity. This is wicked and we're right to fight against this corruption of the truth. But there's a wrong way to react to this corruption which is very tempting for us to pursue and it often takes this form. Okay? It might sound like this. Telling people the truth is loving them. Have you said that? Telling people the truth is loving them, right? Well, that might be a true statement. But often when we say it, I think what we really mean is knowledge is love. Discernment is love. To love is to know the truth and to be able to discern error. But this is a cop-out and it's not biblical. Knowledge isn't love any more than the wheels of your car are the car itself. Discernment is a great gift, and you might have it, and it's vital that we grow in it. You know, Paul is always praying that for the people that he's writing to. I pray that you will grow in spiritual knowledge and spiritual discernment so that you may know the will of God. It's vital that we grow in discernment, but if you're like me, you know that discernment in itself is not sufficient when it comes to effectively talking to people about Jesus. Somehow, Being able to see and identify problems and sins and doctrinal error just isn't enough to propel me into actually caring for someone's soul. And here's why. A few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, this is what Paul says. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There's another translation of that that says knowledge puffs up, Love builds up. Then Paul goes on to say, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now understand that Paul is not saying that knowledge is not important. He's not saying that love is the only thing that matters. He's not setting up knowledge in opposition to truth as if you have to choose between either knowing the truth or loving people. No, both are necessary, 
but it's a matter of order and priority. The question to ask is, is your knowledge rooted and grounded in love? Or has the arrogance of your knowledge crowded out love? Has knowledge thrown love off its throne? If so, when the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit says your knowledge is of no value. It profits you nothing and may it perish with you. Love must lead and direct the use of our knowledge. If it doesn't, forget about your knowledge. Just forget it. It will bring you further condemnation. Now I want you to see what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 8. The last part that I read says this. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. So he said, knowledge makes arrogant, love builds up. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, the question is, where is your confidence? Where are you resting? Where is your faith? Do you have confidence in your discernment? In your ability to point out other people's errors and sins? Or is your confidence in being known by God? You see, you can be arrogant in your knowledge, the knowledge that you possess. There may even be arrogance in knowing a whole lot about God. But the Holy Spirit leaves no room for arrogance in our hearts when he tells us that the central reality of our lives as Christians is to be known by God. The Apostle Paul flips the whole thing on its head. Many of us earnestly seek after knowledge... But how many of us, for how many of us, is it our deepest desire to be known by God? Listen to this. You recognize many of these scripture passages. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Jeremiah says, But you know me, O Lord, you see me. And you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Then God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And how about this? Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Or this, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Or in Matthew, Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
You see, to be known by God is the highest aim of a believer in Jesus Christ. But to be known by God is to be humble before him. It puts knowledge firmly in his hand and removes any occasion for pride from us. To be known by God is a fearful thought. Just think about how you spend your life with other people. Most of us spend our energies trying to hide everything about who we really are from people who might think something bad of us. We're gripped by fear of what people might think. And so we have a desire to cover over our sins with frivolous conversations and shallow relationships and cheap entertainment. And then to imagine, if that's how we are in the face of other sinful men and women, gripped with fear, imagine being known by the holy God who searches hearts and minds with perfect spiritual vision in order to repay each man for all of his deeds. You can't be proud if your desire is to be known by God. But don't you want your name in his book? Isn't that worth all the suffering you can imagine, to be remembered and known as one of his children and brought into heaven with joy into his presence? In order to counteract the pride of knowledge, God exalts the quality of being known by him. Now this bears on evangelism, telling others about Christ, because at the heart of being known is being vulnerable, being open, being exposed. That's what it means to be known. And I think we need to be willing to be known by other people if we're to make inroads into their hearts. You have to be willing to be known in order to love them. To love God is to be known by him. To say to him, know my anxious thoughts. And I think it translates, in a certain extent, to love others includes a willingness to be known by them. It means to open up your own life, your own sin, your own weakness to other people. And if you do this with others, I think you will find that people will be vulnerable to you. If you make yourself vulnerable to them and willing to be known by them. Remember the woman at the well that Jesus offers living water to? And she runs back to the town and what does she tell people? Come, see a man who told me all the things I've done. This guy knows me. This is not the Christ, is it? So remember, knowledge does not equal love. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. This is the main thing. And when love for God becomes the root and grounding for our knowledge, we will begin to bear real fruit. So knowledge does not equal love. Now here's the second truth about love I want us to be grounded in today. And it's this, that love means bearing with weakness. Love means bearing with weakness. God has been opening up to me in the past year or so my hatred of weakness. Which is to say my complete lack of compassion 
which is to say ungodliness to the extreme. Did you know that mercy and compassion are foundational to God's character? Now you say, uh, duh, right? But this is a truth that I forget. Of course, our, my stated theology, our stated theology, what we say we believe, is that God is merciful and loving and compassionate. But I think our heart theology, what I often end up acting on, is that God is by nature holy and righteous, and that mercy and compassion are just these sort of secondary attributes that God just had to take on because of God, man's terrible sin. If only stupid man hadn't sinned, God wouldn't have had to do the whole mercy thing. And the world would have been perfect because he wouldn't have ever had to forgive anybody. Ugh, forgiveness. Such an inconvenient necessity, right? But listen to this. This is how God describes himself to Moses, the minister of God's thunderous, fearful law on Mount Sinai. Okay? Where the law was given. This is what God says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is compassion. He is grace. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness and truth. Truth and compassion embrace each other in God, and he is never without both truth and compassion. What else did Jesus show us and teach us while he came to live among us? But you and I hate weakness, don't we? I think we are a people characterized by disdain for weakness, both in ourselves and in others. Now, I won't spend much time talking about hating the weakness in ourselves, but suffice it to say that there is an ungodly sorrow over sin which is rooted and grounded in pride and which causes you to be paralyzed in the work of God's kingdom. Godly sorrow over sin leads to repentance without regret. That's what 2 Corinthians 7 says. So we hate weakness in ourselves because it's hard to be proud when you're weak, when you see your weakness as it is. But we also hate weakness in others. When we perceive weakness or sin or hardness of heart in someone else or foolishness, our inclination is to immediately turn away. This is the case with our own children. Some of the most difficult work I've experienced in my very brief years of fathering so far is when a child hardens himself or herself to me. When he pulls away and stiffens up, my son or daughter, my first response is to withdraw myself and to feel justified in doing so. Fine, you don't want my affection? I didn't want to give it in the first place. And you don't deserve it anyways. But isn't that perfect ungodliness? 
while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies. God had compassion on you while your heart was still as hard as stone. He didn't wait till you had become soft, till you had shown your great worth and lovability before he poured out his love on you. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. First. There was a time when you did not love God. When your heart was utterly and completely cold and opposed to him. That might be you now. And he set his love on you while you were still in that state. And then drew your heart to himself. And in that, God's love is defined by bearing with weakness. So the question is, do you love, if you're in Christ and you're God's friend, do you love God's enemies? Do you wish with all your heart that his enemies would turn from their sin and give him praise? Or do you write off anyone you perceive to have a hard, hopeless heart? Or to be foolish beyond hope? Or too proud? It's God's glory to convert hard, hopeless hearts. It's God's glory to bear with and overcome our weaknesses. Love means bearing with weakness. That's what his love means, and that's what our extensions of his love to others must mean. Is that we love in the face of opposition and weakness. This defines love. So the question is, how do we get this love that we're supposed to have? Where on earth does it come from? It comes from one place, and this is the third and final truth about love this morning. And that is that Jesus Christ is the great storehouse of love. In order to find this love for others that supersedes knowledge and that bears with weakness, you must go to Christ himself. He is the greatest and only master and teacher and shepherd to guide you in love. You must learn directly from him. He's the only one who can teach you. And I mean him himself, his very person. Not just books about him, but you must actually go to Christ himself. You must know his love if you are to love. Again, not just about his love, but you must actually experience his love. But how do you do that? How do you experience Christ's love? Well, I want to circle back around to Ephesians 3 where we started. Earlier we observed the simple fact that Paul prayed, right? And that he told the Ephesians about his prayer for them to encourage them. But let's take a look at the content of Paul's prayer. What did he actually pray for? 
When it comes down to it, what is his greatest desire for the Ephesians when he lifts them up in prayer to God? It's this, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We are always needing to grow in our understanding and experience of Christ's love. There's really never a time where we've come close to fully grasping it. That's why this is an unceasing prayer of Paul that the Christians he knew would grow in this way. The expression Paul uses to describe the growth in this knowledge of Christ's love is even kind of ridiculous. He says, as he overflows with praise for Christ's love, he prays that the Ephesians might know the love that surpasses knowledge. He's at the limits of language. At his time Greek, this is a pretty direct translation, it really says that you might know the love that surpasses knowledge. Somehow, that God would enable you by the strength of his spirit spirit, to actually know and experience Christ's love. And we can't take this growth for granted. It's not something that just happens automatically or in an instant. It only happens as we continually pray for it and seek after it. And God loves to continually pour out his grace and power as we unceasingly look to him for it. And so you must go to Christ to get this love. And here's a place to start. is by praying to Christ. Go to him and confess your hatred of weakness. Go to him and confess your ungodly lack of compassion. On your children, on your spouse, on your co-workers, on your classmates. Go to him and confess it. Because you know what's wonderful is that lack of love, lack of compassion is a sin which is covered by Christ's love, by his blood. In fact, it's a sin that is so awful that no other payment besides Christ's blood will cancel its debt. It is a sin that we can and must repent of and be cleansed of and that he can cause us to walk in victory over. Don't think that Christ just came to die for immorality or murder, but that you somehow have to conjure up real love from inside yourself somewhere. He died so that our cold, dead, sinful hearts might be completely renovated. The only sufficient supply of love you will find is not in yourself, but in Christ himself. And he's glorified to take unloving, unmerciful creatures like us and to form us into his image. So spend time in prayer. Speaking with Christ. Transacting with Christ. Pleading with Christ and confessing to him your utter emptiness of love and compassion. Seek to be known by him, even and especially in your great sinfulness and weakness. Ask him to search you and know your heart and to try your anxious thoughts. And as you, rooted and grounded in his love, grow in your comprehension of the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, you will begin to grow in your love for your brothers, your sisters, your children, your spouse, and even your enemies and God's enemies. And then, when you've gone to Christ, 
as you go to Christ and pray that he would reveal his love to you, pray for the people that you love. Pray for your fellow Christians who are needing to grow in the knowledge of Christ's love. And then tell them that you're praying for them. Let's follow Paul's example and tell each other that we're doing this work. And then pray for unbelievers. Pray for God's enemies. Plead with God for their souls. And then, what do you think? Don't tell them you pray about them, right? My father-in-law has this habit at restaurants... Some of you may may have heard of people doing things like this, but when my father-in-law goes to a restaurant, uh, when the server first comes to the table, he asks them their name, and then he remembers their name and uses it throughout the evening. Um, And then sometime around when the food is brought to the table, he'll say, you know, hey, Matt or Katie or Jason, we always pray before we eat. Is there anything we can pray for you? And then... He prays for the server when we pray for the meal. And it doesn't have to be and usually isn't, you know, like while the server's standing there or anything. Um, But you ask God to bless them in their work and for God to be kind to them. And then, as Max will remind you, you you leave a big tip and God will have answered your prayer. (laughs) What do you think people's reactions are when they get asked this question? Maybe some of you have done it or seen someone do it. How dare you? What a ridiculous thing to ask. They very well might say no. But they'll probably be more vulnerable to you than you expect. Um, A few times I've mustered up the faith to do this. Um, Sometimes people think you're strange. But with humble people, I think is what it is, you might see some pretty amazing things. So we tried this uh, when we went out for our anniversary this past year. We stayed at a bed and breakfast And so we ate two meals at this restaurant. We ate dinner there the night before and breakfast the next day. And at dinner the first night, I did this. I just asked the server who she was and asked if there was anything we could pray for her. And she said something fairly generic, like that God would give her peace or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. But it was sort of like a formal, okay, yeah, sure, you can pray for me. Um, But then we came for breakfast the next morning and we had a different waitress. And... I don't know if word had gotten around or something, um, or if the first waitress had talked, but she, when I asked the question, is there anything I can pray for you, it was almost like she was waiting for me to ask. She, seriously, it was like, oh. <laughs> there was like excite, visible excitement on her face, and she actually said, she kind of looked anxiously around, there was a, people of table right, or a table of people right back here, and she said, oh, can we wait till these people leave here? And I was like, sure, yeah. I guess so. Um, And so she waited until this table of people left, and then she came back over to our table and proceeded to tell us, you know, that her divorce had just been finalized a week ago and that she was fearful about what was going to happen with her son and with her providing for her son. And all I had done was ask, can I pray for you, (laughs) right? And so, when you demonstrate to the humble that God cares about their souls, they will be vulnerable to you. And so here's my challenge for you, is to tell an unbeliever that you pray for, that you pray for them. That's a challenge to you. 
Tell an unbeliever that you pray for, that you pray for them. Do you think they'll be offended? I doubt it. But what if they ask what I've been praying? Oh, only that God would forgive their sins and that he would pour out the riches of his blessing in Christ Jesus on them and that he would be pleased to call them his own son or daughter. Why would you pray such a thing? Only one reason, right? Love. If you tell them that, they might actually know that you care about them. Could you do such a thing? Pray without caring about their soul? Do you think that that might soften their heart towards you and teach them of God's love? I hope so. And I think so. We have to have hope in this work, which we'll hear about next week. Um, But as we talk about love, I want you to remember those things and come back to prayer. Seeking God in prayer, even and especially in your own private prayer with God. It's good to pray with one another, but what you do in your private secret prayer reveals a lot about your heart. And so seek after Christ in prayer and to know him more. And let's pray together. Christ, we have not loved as you have loved. We have not lived in your image by loving the people around us. In fact, we have hated them and we have spurned them. And you tell us that this condemns us. That when we fail to love the people around us, we are not doing the will of your Father in heaven. And we pray that you would forgive us and please Teach us your love and help us to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of it so that we might be effective ambassadors for your kingdom. Strengthen us this day and this week, we pray, for this work and be pleased to use us and confirm the work of our hands. We pray in your name. Amen.